Um, welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Ryan Cooper. And I'm Alexi the Greek. So today we're going to talk a little bit, I think we're going to start with some election news. Uh, talk a little bit about the New York state primary elections and the some of the ensuing takes that have come out uh, since then. Just a little bit of background, I guess. Uh, New York State is arguably the most corrupt state in the country, and the bar for that is really high. But, you know, it's a classic machine politics state um, run by, at the moment, Andrew Cuomo, a guy who's, you know, just one of the all-time worst, most corrupt, cynical, and also incompetent politicians of all time. And so he faced this big primary challenge from, uh, you know, actress and first-time political candidate Cynthia Nixon. Um, And then there was also a challenge for the lieutenant governorship uh, from uh, Jumaine Williams, I believe, and then also for the attorney general from Zephyr Teachout, who challenged Cuomo in 2014 for the uh, the go- um, primary governor's, the governor's primary, and lost. Um, and then meanwhile, there was, a, there was a big down ballot effort to, uh, to, to make some inroads in the New York state machine, basically. Um, and especially there, there, you know, here's a classic example of why Cuomo is such a scumbag. He, uh, when he took office back in 2011, uh, after he had taken office, he, um, in 20, uh, the state Senate district boundaries had been heavily gerrymandered by the Republican Party. But in 2012, Democrats won anyways a majority because Obama's coattails are so big in the state. Uh, so what Cuomo did was he basically sort of tacitly arranged this coalition of, uh, dem- you know, Democratic machine state senators to break away and form their own party, the Independent Democratic Conference, um, eight of them. And that was enough to tip the balance, and they caucused with the Republicans. They basically were were being Republicans without acknowledging it. And because, you know, most people don't pay that close of attention to you know, state politics, you know, who, who knows who their state senator or representative is? And a lot of people don't. Um, that persisted up to this day. Um, and so the primary elections happened. Cuomo wiped the floor with uh, Cynthia Nixon. Um, but in the process, he felt as though he had to really push left and try to appropriate a lot of her positions Jumaine Williams got much closer. He he almost won, but still lost for lieutenant governorship. And then Zephyr Teachout also lost, I think mainly because uh, a Cuomo ally named Sean Patrick Maloney, had he jumped in and split the vote basically in upstate. So, um, but at the state, the, the state level, um, down ballot, the... Uh, Six out of eight of the independent, the IDC fake Democrats lost. Um, and one of them uh, 
guy named Dilan. I forget his first name. He ran against a woman called, uh, his primary challenger was a woman named Julia Salazar, who, you know, maybe we'll talk about her a little bit in a, in a minute, but, but that particular primary was, I think, inarguably the most watched, uh, state legislative election in terms of media coverage in the history of the United States by probably an order of magnitude, at least there was massive international coverage of this race, um, for some, some kind of, you know, legitimate reasons and some absolutely awful, disgusting reasons. Garbage reasons. Yeah. Um, so that's the background. I don't know. Uh, Alexi, any initial thoughts on this? It's a good intro. A lot going on. Uh, I would say that off the top of my head, it exemplifies the ways in which political struggle isn't an even steady march. And you take some hits and you, you make some progress. Uh, Cuomo is so slimy that reptiles are embarrassed on, on, on their behalf for, for the association. But uh, he's clearly powerful and machine politics is powerful for a reason and people are part of it because of the fact that it does work. But that being said, it's so encouraging that six out of eight IDC challengers won. And we'll talk about the one that you mentioned. I think the first name uh, of the incumbent that lost to, to Julia Salazar is Martin. Does that ring a bell? Does that sound right to you? Something like that. Yeah. We'll look it up. But in any case, uh, that was spectacularly mired in legitimate and illegitimate issues, both political and personal, uh, and that needs its own unpacking. But what I think is important to understand is the ways in which intra-left battles are fought and the results matter greatly, and the attention brought not just to the results, but to the political backstabbing and cynicism of the entrenched centrist democratic left that Cuomo is a perfect exemplar of needs to be really thought through and promoted as the garbage that it is so that more and more victories like the ones by the IDC challengers can, uh, can feed into other such victories. And so the, the left can actually do the hard work of moving candidates to the left that win even like Cuomo, but also, and more importantly, defeating the incumbents who are, who are so uh, corrupt and paid for. So that's just off the top of my head. It's very encouraging overall, despite the losses, even in loss, there can be hope and uh, it's a battle, not the war that was lost for those that, that lost. So those are just a few thoughts off the top of my head. Yeah, I think that's broadly correct. You know, it's a kind of thing, you know, political progress is seldom just sort of sweeping revolutionary victory. There's a, especially in, when you're talking about electoral politics, there's often a lot of herky-jerky back and forth. Um, so, you know, we're going to have to keep our eyes peeled on that. Um, back to the Salazar incident case, um, I should mind, say. Before we jump into that, do you mind? I, I have one more thought that's more broad in scope. 
What do you think about this point, which I think is, is valid just objectively, but interesting uh, philosophically, which is that for leftist candidates, uh, especially in primaries, it's better to have just the really passionate, principled, in-the-know lefties turnout and have an overall lower turnout amongst the if you will, ignorant voters in the Democratic Party who might otherwise, as it seems they did, just vote for the name they know, like Cuomo. Um, Put another way, Cynthia Nixon might have done just as poorly as Zephyr Teachout did against Cuomo, but the voter turnout was much, much higher. So that didn't necessarily favor her. Um, Yeah, I saw some... I saw some Nixon folks, and I think the campaign is actually sort of camp like complained about turnout a little bit. I think that you know you you could certainly see individual cases, uh, like for example, the Alexandria Ocasio Cortez won just exactly that sort of prim- primary low turnout, um, and she won it on the strength of just like being able to turn out, you know, a, a fairly diverse coalition of, you know, working class minorities, but also like sort of semi-affluent, at least white liberals in that district. Um, but I think in general, that's kind of a losing strategy. Um, you know, the it's not a coincidence. So here's another aspect of New York corruption. Um, this is their second primary that they have. So they have a a date on, I don't know what the date is exactly, but they have one uh, primary for national elections. That's the one that uh, Ocasio-Cortez won. That was a couple months ago. And then they have the one for state-level elections. And the explicit purpose of that, along with a lot of other stuff that's designed to keep, uh, you know, make it harder to register for the party, um, you know, they have closed primaries. Uh, It's just like, throwing up a lot of roadblocks to voting, basically making it as hard as possible. And the calculation that the machine has made is that keeping turnout low is a winner for them. And I think that's probably right. In most cases, you know, if you have a really, um, you know, you have a, a really, uh, compelling and good organizer, you might be able to overcome that handicap, but, you know, I think the lesson of the Nixon campaign is that, you know, I mean, number one, she, uh, you know, had no political experience. I think she ran a decent campaign, but I don't think it was like perfect at all. Um, and then also, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, she's like a wealthy white lady. And uh, I think she just didn't have a lot of, you know, of the most sort of simple political inroads with uh the, the 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 base voters of the democratic party like cuomo absolutely cleaned her clock in the bronx and in brooklyn um among working class minority communities and i think that's just kind of a hurdle you've got to get over either through just like meet and greet politics retail or whatever or uh you know posting up more um compelling candidates like Ocasio-Cortez who have, you know, more roots in the community type of thing. Um, And then just, you know, sort of building political consciousness generally. Um, 
But I think in general, you know, I, the left ought to assume pretty much across the board that more turnout is better. Uh, electoral institutions should be more open. Um, and even if you do occasionally lose on that account, it's worth taking the hit. That's right. I think that was really what I was going for. Uh, first of all, you're absolutely right that the the practical advantage wouldn't be what some think it would be to try to have a strategy to to take advantage of low turnout. But more importantly, the uh, the left has to be principled. Principled, and if if it's not about democratic representation, if it's not about democratic voices being heard, if it's not about increasing as many people as possible being involved, even if it just means voting in the democratic process, then it's totally unmoored from the principles of the left. And so I think it just has to be the case that if the problem is uneducated voters, we need to educate them. If the problem is uh, misrepresentations by the entrenched, centrist, corrupt Democrats in the primaries, we have to beat them in terms of our ability to communicate. Uh, if, if the problem is money, we have to raise money. And, and I just think that, generally speaking, when we're trying to do prudential or practical, uh, tactical or strategic things, we have to moor those to principle as much as possible. Otherwise, we, uh, we endanger ourselves and, and become too similar to the enemy we're trying to defeat. Yep, I, that's very well put. Um, it might also be so a good I transition think, to to the Salazar question as well. Yeah, actually, you know, in these questions about like kind of authenticity and background. Um, well, you know, full disclosure, I've never met Julia, but I um, we travel in sort of the same circles, and I we've both uh, Facebook and I think Twitter friends with her. And so, you know, we're kind of at least tangentially uh, associated with her. So, yeah, Julius Salazar uh, is running for, for, for state senate against uh, Martin DeLon. You were right about that. Ha! Uh, I love it when I'm right. He uh, So this guy is a real estate stooge. Um, he got tons and tons and tons of money from real estate. And Salazar is running on... You know, basically, a, I think her main t- tenets of her platform, you know, she's saying rent control, bring back social housing, um, um, you know, more pro-renter regulations. Uh, so a broadly anti-landlord sort of uh, campaign strategy. And um, in the course of the campaign, it kind of came out that... Uh, Tablet Magazine ran a bunch of kind of hit piece articles on her that was like looking into her background in great detail and uncovering, you know, I'm sort of unqualified to like litigate this exactly, but it did sort of seem as though she had maybe shaded the truth, misrepresented herself a little bit. Um, You know, she said she was an immigrant uh, from Colombia, but... She had actually been born in Florida, according to her um, her brother. And, um, you know, she reacted kind of angrily to the that accusation. And, um, 
you know, there there was made some folks on the left a bit uncomfortable, uh, you know, for obvious reasons. But um, it was also also you know like the the history of candidates uh, kind of exaggerating their their hard scrabble background um, or their you know the the their um, ethnic ties sort of thing. Uh, that's a very long and storied tradition, especially in this country, and especially in New York politics, actually, because, you know, ethnic politics is so, I mean, that is New York politics for hundreds of years. Um, so anyway, yeah, that was like a big, um, you know, she just got a ton of oppo drop stuff. And then finally, there, you know, so this is the stuff that I think I think was motivated in entirely bad faith, but did get some, you know, legitimately interesting reporting, I would say. But then at, um, then there was the Daily Caller uh, basically outed her as a survivor of um, sexual assault uh, by her own testimony um, from the the spokesman for the the uh benjamin netanyahu david keys i'm not sure if i'm pronouncing that right but yeah she's she was forced to admit uh bring out as part of this uh, daily caller article which tried to cast doubt on this allegation um she that she had you know been sexually assaulted by this guy big big time high profile israeli elite guy and a close ally of Netanyahu. And this, um, when that accusation came out, I think uh, like 12 more women uh, that same day came out and said they had also been victimized by this guy. Um, And so that one, you know, there is really no, uh, there's um, no reason to doubt that as far as I can tell. And it's not ever something, you know, to, to where she has sort of played up these kind of, uh, you know, if if we are to conclude she maybe exaggerated her background a little bit, she never said anything about this sexual assault until Daily Caller, which is like, you know, maybe one degree of separation from S- Stormfront uh, website um, brought it up. And it's just a scummy attempt to discredit her. But... At the end of the day, she she won the election. She won it by like fifteen percent. It was a total blowout. So, yeah, interesting uh, interesting development. There's a piece by the garbage New York Times writer Barry Weiss. Is that how you say her first name? Is it Barry? I, I've always said Barry. I Barry don't know. Barry. She doesn't deserve the proper pronunciation anyway. So. Uh, where she, the title is Julia Salazar, the left's post-truth politician. And she makes some attempts to connect her uh, relationship with the truth as similar to Donald Trump's relationship to the truth. Yeah. And, and first, you know, before we dive into to her terrible take, and, and I think it's important to note that there's a bit of irony here insofar as centrist Democrats who neglect true economic leftism and issues that would help everyone, including people of color, including all the different groups that traditionally 
only get help from the left at all, whether uh, centrist Democrats or, or more lefty. Those Democrats often appropriate identity in service of getting votes from those groups, despite their economic neoliberalism not actually servicing the needs and helping, even when it comes to, say, uh, housing or uh, Obama's failure with black homeowners and the ways in which, the you've written about this, the funds for uh, helping out people underwater were not appropriately used, and black wealth went down more under his administration than ever before, all these different ways. It's always a kind of head fake when issues of race or sexual orientation or any number of uh, identity politics related issues are used to boost support. There's always the feeling that it's instrumental and somehow inauthentic when it comes to at least the economic issues, right? So the irony here is you have someone who is not trying to do that, who actually is proposing policies that will help all the different groups that she does, in fact, represent. Uh, she was maligned for not being Jewish enough. She was maligned uh, for not being um uh, immigrant enough she was maligned for maybe yeah. being a fake me too person i you know it's just such an obvious cynical gross uh jujitsu move against someone whose politics actually for the first time um would serve so many groups who've been disappointed by these garbage incumbents who have been uh caucusing with the republicans it, it's just to me so phenomenally hypocritical and gross that I can't even begin, you know, I'm having a hard time articulating it just because it's so upsetting. Um, that, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's, you know, just off the top of my head, that's how I feel. Yeah. I, I've never failed to read a Barry Weiss column and not just like get, get an Im immediate sort of sinus headache, you know, just like start, just, start, just <laughs> come bores right in the center of your forehead, like a drill bit. Um, That's right, it's, and it's the cringeworthy should uh, have her picture next to it in the in the dictionary. Monumentally bad faith, you know. I mean, if if we grant all of the you know tablet mag reporting again, this is a case where someone basically exaggerated their background and their 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 ethnic background and their um, uh, class upbringing. A little bit, you know, not not entirely, you know. It's not like she was, uh, you know. It's her well, well within the bounds of normal political politicking to create narratives in short messages in order to let people know a bit about who you are. It's it's completely within the normal bounds, I would say, for the most part. Yeah, I mean, how many how many of these types of stories would you would you f find if you were to investigate every single you know of the like fifty thousand state uh, legislators with this level of aggressiveness, where people are like, oh, I grew up in a trailer and it was like actually he was, he was a private school kid or something like that, um, I would guess it would be like twenty to forty percent of the people, um, and this you know and this speaks to not not just like current realities but also history 
I mean, this is a this is a type of thing that goes back like I would like literally to the Roman Republic. You know, this like f- people, um, you know, for for whatever reason, when they're when they have a political ambition and they want to like uh, portray themselves as having a you know a certain type of legitimacy that they don't actually have or only have like to limited extent and you know the the different you know and that's not to say like it is an interesting question and if people are misrepresenting themselves like they shouldn't do that but on the other hand that is categorically different from uh president trump you know this as 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 weiss herself says like the first uh, sentence of her of uh, of her garbage, her call. Her column is uh, according to the Washington Post running count. Donald Trump is averaging six, seven point six Trumpian claims a day. So that's One clearly more. a way of life. That's a way of being, right there. That that is yeah. a standard operating procedure. One wonders how many Salazarian claims Julius Salazar has spoken. That's what Weiss says next, and the answer is probably about maybe seven total. In her entire like campaign, you know, because right. what Trump does is he lies constantly about everything, literally dozens of times a day sometimes, you know. I mean, the average is 7.6, but it's been way, way more than that on occasion. You know, he, he lies about his his background. He lies about the content of his policies. He lies about, uh, you know, just everyday, you know, factual happenings. I think and, Trump's lies are so persistent when combined with his his memory issues that everything is sweet generous and he doesn't even know himself what he thinks or has said before or, or believes. It's all this miasma of garbage that comes pours forth out of his mouth. Yeah, and and you know, comparing that I would I would say almost certainly the most dishonest you know president and probably national politician in the history of the United States. And again, the bar for that is really high. Um, is it's, it's almost Trumpian level of dishonesty. It's absolutely preposterous. And, um, you know, it, 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 and you know, while you're on that point, I think it's great to focus on the nature of politics and political messaging, which is what is the work you're doing with the argument you're making in, in service of, of what? In service of who? In service of what kind of power? And to the extent that Julia Salazar is perhaps using parts of her identity in ways that might be a little uh, standard operating procedure for politicians and not super high on the level of... Uh, coming clean and being very careful about narrative and, and, and such. Who is she doing that in service of with her policies? She's doing that in service of the very people that have not been represented, the, the, the demos, the, the public, the actual people who are voting for her. And that has convinced so many volunteers to knock on doors. It's almost unprecedented. These people that support her have a tremendous amount of respect for her and for her integrity. Um, the numbers are so high that it didn't matter that the media was doing the smear job. It, it won despite of that. 
But usually, usually, politicians who lie, like Trump, do so in order to kind of pull the eyes over people and do so with the support of a lot of big money in order to not actually need to knock on doors and talk to the people. So I just think it's important to understand political messaging in the context of who the messaging is serving and which people the candidate is meant to help by that messaging. Yeah, if you're if you're trying to like, you know, associate yourself with the downtrodden in order to um help the downtrodden, that's a very different thing where whereas if you're doing that in order to like try to sell tax cuts for the rich or something like that, you know, and I think it speaks to why she won so overwhelmingly because people saw that and they're like, well, that's kind of sketchy, I guess, but like better her than this real estate guy, like criminy. Meanwhile, Cuomo can, meanwhile, Cuomo can get elected and he can win the primary despite his ridiculous, ridiculous messaging that isn't necessarily patently false because it's absurd but remember when he says i am gay i am i am a black man i am you know basically i am spartacus essentially i i am everyone in new york i I am i am all of the oppressed people i am everyone And, and and it was it's a lie insofar as he's not actually working to help those people but because it wasn't the right kind of dishonesty uh and trust me he has plenty of dishonest and corrupt practices uh, he just sails through unscathed. So it's interesting when someone who, presumably, Bari Weiss, I don't know her politics particularly, but she seems centrist Democrat maybe, perhaps uh, anti-Trump at least. So wh- what is she Ish. about here? What's her deal? Well, I think, you know, the the real, <clears throat> the main motivation here, I think, is that... Um, As she, as she she says down at like towards the bottom of her her column, Weiss says, uh, you know, her supporters are now using this episode to paint a broader falsehood. They're implying that the critical reporting was ginned up by right wing Zionists to discredit her, that she's a victim of a targeted campaign rather than a woman who was victimized by a man, but also one who fabricated part of her past for political gain. Um. Just like Mr. Trump's supporters, her fans have reserved much of their hostility for the media, which had the chutzpah to ask basic questions of a person running for elected office. And again, so what, you know, uh, she, you know, some people have implied that the reporting was ginned up. Uh, Again, it appears to be false that the reporting was fabricated, that there's at least something to it. However, I think it is absolutely beyond question that the reporting was done by right-wing Zionists to discredit her. And there was a very obvious Zionist political uh, uh, point here Agenda. to be made yeah. because she, you know, she's a left-wing, uh, you know, social. She, yeah, I, I'm, is she? I'm not, I wasn't she sure is. about. Yeah, yeah she right. So, so she's a, you know, kind of anti-Netanyahu, I wouldn't say anti-Israel necessarily, but certainly a harsh critic of of the Israeli government in its current form, and that attracted a ton of attention. And now we learn later, literally, you know, she she had a you know a terrible accusation, you know, a a, a, 
um, detail knowledge of a close aide to Benjamin Netanyahu. And so, like, it doesn't take a conspiracy theorist to, to, like, sort of connect the dots here, that there is a massive political axe grind behind all this reporting, which, again, I would say absolutely beyond question, more media attention paid to this state Senate race than any state Senate race in the history of the United States. And clearly, clearly, this would have happened to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez if anyone in the establishment had any idea she had a chance at winning, which it was yeah. totally unclear she would. Uh, even just a few weeks before she won. And so this to me smacks of a broader fear of the left actually gaining power on behalf of the people instead of the special interest groups who are um, basically controlling the elites in the democratic establishment. And it's no wonder that they're going to just pull out the dirtiest. I mean, this is like an episode of West Wing or House of Cards or any other type of show where it's just oppo research, throw everything at them. And... How in the world is a state Senate race, how is it so important nationally and internationally to know the actual biography of the candidate as if this is, it's, it's, it's more in depth than candidate, candidates for presidency get. It's, it's ridiculous. I mean, unbelievable yeah. the extent to which she was vilified, um, but I'm so there glad that an, she overcame it. There was an article in uh, New York Magazine that was trying to trace her lineage back like 500 years, you know? <laughs> like Unbelievable. The, that didn't happen to Trump. <laughs> just, it's just it's baffling. so fascinating, the asymmetry of, of interest. There are, I mean, talk about, we could talk about Trump all day long and, and the ways in which he still is under scrutinized for the myriad of things not just in his character but in actual campaign and then presidential governance that directly affects both legal ethical and uh, political representation issues for the american public but but someone is maybe a little bit iffy on her biography but is actually pushing for radical democratic changes and the policies aren't the issue it's 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 the person's biography it's it's clearly something we should um we should combat on the left and i know that a lot of leftists are uncomfortable and and maybe maybe we should talk about about that because there is a sense in which when you're on the left um you want to not compromise your principles uh for any one candidate and i think this can lead far too often to a conflation of different problems with different candidates and a tendency to be uh to say there's no true leftist and and to kind of wave away the actual promising candidates who can who can effectuate real change yeah well perhaps uh, yeah just to wrap up this section here i think that um you know that the focus on uh authenticity of background i think can be a, a a pretty unhelpful one um, you know, because the fact of the matter is by the way, the, the, the way that the economy is so unequal, like actual poor and actual working class, uh, people have hardly any realistic chance of being able to make it into the echelons of society where they could actually run as a, um, you know, run for office. And so, I think that 
you know, to the extent that that can happen, that's great, you know, and especially we're seeing a lot of black and brown and especially black women candidates running for stuff. And that's that's awesome. You know, that's that's definitely like a sort of pipeline worth sort of, you know, widening, accelerating. Um, but, you know, when it comes to an individual race, like oftentimes the most the, the biggest, especially for these state races, the biggest question is, can we find anyone just someone to step up to the plate and like run for this this turkey of a race and i think that you know it's like if if you come from like a class privileged background or whatever but you feel like you have good politics and you have like you know the support of the local kind of socialist infrastructure and so forth that's a completely legitimate thing to do you know you don't have to exaggerate yourself and you don't have to um pretend to be something you're not, uh, to run for office. You know, uh, I think being a, being a class trader is really a under, uh, under like appreciated virtue, you know? So, so many, um, you know, FDR, our best president was a class trader. Um, and it, you know, it, 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 in order to, to have a decent society and it's almost kind of sort of like mechanically necessary for elites to be on your side, at least in some ways, you know, um, Absolutely. you need that, that help. I think it's a great point. It's a, it's a good, good way to wrap it up that, um, that I think is good to keep in mind for the future. Um, we, we in fact want more people that already have power and privilege to work against those forces that sustain that divide and instead to work for the liberation um, and emancipation of, of the people. Absolutely. Cool. So part two, <laughs> um, let's change gears and talk about climate change. All right. This is the fun part of the show, the uplifting, hopeful, endearing, not at all scary discussion about climate. Yeah. Um, so I guess we could just do f first like a quick update on um, Florence, which uh, it's so a this, town in Kentucky, but that's not what we're talking about. <laughs> this is a hurricane. Um, you know, it's currently, you know, kind of pouring its way. Uh, over the the sort of stalled over North Carolina, and I think it's going to start heading north soon. But basically, a, a hurricane which had um, moderately strong winds for a hurricane when it first landed. You know, it was in the like I think 130 mile an hour uh, wind zone. You know, strong, but not like you know the kind of like tr truly terrible winds like in uh, Maria. That just flattened Puerto Rico. However, what it has had is it's going, it has been going really slowly, and it's also just been dumping tons and tons and tons of rain. Um, so I'm uh, just reading from an Atlantic article by uh, Robinson Meyer. So it's down to a depression, which means it's uh, winds aren't sustained winds aren't over 39 miles an hour so far, um, but. He was saying um, 
flooding is kind of the big uh, danger at this point. Uh, Florence um, has smashed the North Carolina record for most rainfall dumped by a single storm, as well as the single storm rainfall record for any East Coast state except Florida. Uh, some areas in southeastern North Carolina have received more than 40 inches of rain since Thursday. Wilmington, North Carolina, the eighth largest city in the state, has already received more rain in 2018 than in any previous year, with more than three months left to go. So obviously, you know, there's um, just incredible flooding in all these places. Um, And the the governor is quoted here as saying, "The, the strongest storm bands are dumping two to three inches of rain per hour. So, you know, just the hardest rain you could imagine, basically. Um, And it's all just, you know, drenching the state. And, um, yeah, this this brings up, you know, the classic conversation around extreme weather, especially hurricanes and the climate change issue. Um, I wrote an article last week which is basically, you know, assigning some responsibility to to climate change for this, uh, but also, you know, particularly Republicans. Um, And, you know, getting this just ridiculous pushback, and we'll dig into it in a minute, but I don't know, I guess before we do, any thoughts on the storm in in, in this kind of like tedious debate about responsibility. So it's interesting when Trump, as he tends to do, simply denies basic facts like the number of deaths in Puerto Rico due to the hurricane there. And yeah, does so I, to me, it's, it's such a clear, link between that kind of denialism and climate change denialism generally and more specifically the ways in which and look you know we're on the record for not being the Steven Pinker scientism folks who think that there's no such thing as interpretation or or value or ideology and that everything is just <laughs> objective and, and and rational and and easy to discern and and Basically, you can have a technocratic autopilot drive everything. But on the other hand, there are indisputable facts and there are ways of evaluating evidence in the context of political argument and and policy proposal. And there is that sense that the tribalism of the Republican Party as, you know, most exemplified by Trump and his base is so almost... Not just, it's not even just allergic to fact, but almost turned on by challenging facts that educated elites have on offer, whether they're scientists or, or anyone else, that it's almost like a gratifying masturbatory performance that Trump and his supporters tend to, um, tend to enjoy. And, and for some reason, the more outrageous the denial, the more he does it and the more his base likes it. They're triggering the libs. Yes, that's it. That's it. It's it's all theater. And 
there is a complete cognitive dissonance, not just from the truth, but from the impact that the actual policies and the actual incompetence have on real human beings. And there's, I think this is, you know, the anti-PC or the anti-social justice warrior stuff is especially uh, derived from the same uh, tribal gratification of reveling in apathy or even antipathy towards the suffering at the hands of policies and, and or at the hands of failing to address things like climate change. Uh, I don't know if it's, it's a form of, of nihilism that is as permeating um, their politics or what, but it's just uh, so predictable and so sad at this point that, that it creates despair in so many people, I think, and, and we, have to, we have to fight that. So th- those are just some thoughts off the top of my head, but this is just another instance uh, of that pattern being repeated by Trump and, and by those that love it. Yeah, so a little, you know, specifics here. North Carolina, so North Carolina, it seems, so far has gotten hit the worst by out of all this, um, the storm. And uh, six years ago, the North Carolina state government um, the, the, basically passed a bill that, that suppressed a report from the state's own bureaucracy that was warning of the risks of sea level rise. So there was a, there's a thing that the North Carolina called the Coastal Resources Commission. And in 2010, they uh, issued a report that um, you know, estimated that sea levels um, along the state, along the coastline, could rise uh, by 39 inches was their estimate over the next 100 years. And so there's a coalition of real estate developers and business groups and, uh, you know, the f- just fruitcake science denier uh, type of people. And they, they drafted a bill that basically, re- you know, uh, stopped the, um, overturned the kind of, you know, conclusions and it passed in 2012 and had concrete effects in terms of like what you know what the uh the regulations were for building on the sea the uh coast and you know what sorts of insurance you're supposed to take out and that sort of thing um and you know as we've said this is like it, it is very much part of the culture war shtick of the Republican party and how they sort of like just really enjoy poking the libs in the eye. But in this case, you know, it, it couldn't, you know, this is self harm. Most of all. Um, it, I mean, it looks that at this point, most of the, uh, rain is coming from the, or sorry, most of the flooding is coming from the rain, but you know, before when, when, Florence hit the coast it you know it was pushing a big storm surge which you know pushed up the high tide uh you know from from what I saw for between like three to nine feet in places and these are just exactly the type of uh people who were lobbying the government to suppress this report because it was sort of politically inconvenient conclusions but it's not the kind of politically inconvenient conclusions where 
you know, you're like dumping your asbestos and carcinogen mist into the factor, into the like local kindergarten playground or something like that. It's the kind where like the mist is going right into your own mouth. You know, it's like this is your building that's going to be, um, you know, drowned in many cases. I mean, I'm sure some people like sort of sold and then took the money out of the state or whatever. But like, no doubt, a lot of big time real estate investors and wealthy people with like expensive properties on the coastline got absolutely wiped out from this storm. And, you know, as I mean, on one level, you, you, there's that instinct to kind of gloat a little bit to just be like, you know, what did you think was going to happen, idiots? But on the other hand, it's like, man, how how can you be so foolish? You know, you, that like, it's it's just a. When I think of the Republican Party today, I, the the word that always pops in the front of my head is diseased. It's it's morally and it's intellectually and it's politically diseased. And this is the result, you know. It is the kind of thing where like a, in 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 the case of a diseased body where the where the body is like eating itself, you know, through some allergic reaction or cancer or something like that. This is this is that type of scenario. I think that's a spot on metaphor and <clears throat> one that has a a long history in, in political philosophy, political theory. Uh, the body politic is diseased, and part of that disease is to not know that it's diseased. In fact, you know, if we, if we go all the way back to uh, the different parts of the soul that Plato discussed, and that, that was a metaphor for um, whether a regime was healthy and stable or, or whether it was going to deteriorate and degenerate because of the instability and disharmony um, rather than the unity and harmony of of the regime, we have those passions whipped up by a demagogue that, if you stick with the metaphor, prevents the rational part of the body politic from having the power over the passions to decide what carrying to do. out its proper function. Right. Exactly. That's right. That's right. The pa- it, the passions are important, but the rationality is important. Like they need to balance each they other work out. Together. You know? They need to work together. Yeah. yeah. You know, in the the in this case it's like the passions have like sort of throttled the 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 rational aspect. Um you know, it's interesting that the third part of the soul is in Greek called thumos, which could be translated as spiritedness. And it's important to have your thumos properly cultivated so that you have a sense of shame and a sense of honor about the right things. It, you know, that thumotic desire to, say, look at uh, the wreckage of a car accident. Uh, there's supposed to be shame when you do that. There's supposed to be this internal struggle that says, no, don't look at that. Um, this is also the part of the soul that's supposed to keep soldiers from raping and pillaging when they are victorious. And I think there's there's something about Trump's lack of shame and something about how he encourages um, the very opposite of honor that is working in conjunction with the passions to dominate reason. I think there's there's an interesting metaphor there about the body politic and the ways in which um, 
such shameful actions are being treated as normal and okay and excused are helping aid those passions that ignore reason. And, and I think that is a disastrous combination. Trump is almost sort of like a supervillain in that he has no superego or the, what would you call it? The, the, the... No, that's, that's right. He's all id. He's all yeah. id. And what was it? I want to say Thanos, but it's not. Oh, Thumos. <laughs> Thumos. Thumos. Well, he, so, so Thumos is the spiritedness, but the spiritedness yeah. um, is supposed to be aligned with what is honorable. Um, yeah. Because, I mean, the, you could think of a soldier who rapes and pillages as being very spirited in the doing of that, but that's not good. <laughs> right? No, no, no. Uh, so, so there's a, a corruption of the spirit as well as a corruption. Uh, the corruption of the soul insofar as the spirit and the reason are not functioning properly in conjunction with the passions. And, and he is, is clearly, um, clearly all id and all passion and the opposite of, uh, of one who understands what honor uh, should be. Yeah. And he's, uh, he's... I, ironically though, talking about patriotism and uh, make America great again. So appropriating the language of honor, right. And appropriating the, <laughs> The, the, the language of so many virtues that he is exhibiting the perversion of that there's something brilliantly disgusting about it. I, I just, it's almost hard to wrap your mind around um, because he so directly perverts the thing that he pretends to be. It's just, it's bizarre. Yeah, I think he, you know, he is like a supervillain in that he he shows what you can do if you absolutely abandon anything like shame, honor, integrity, honesty, you know, the the whole panoply of things you might label virtuous and you just be an absolutely shameless bad person all the time. You gain enormous power doing that. But it's a corrupted power you know and and it is you know in a in a in a superhero movie it would be the kind of thing where like there's a pestilential black boil that's like growing on the side of your neck or something like that because it is that kind of you know you see it in how there was you know you shall know them by their fruits you know like the mm. twelve thousand children who are in child concentration camps now um so so somehow this is part and parcel of a broader approach to climate change that isn't just incompetent, but, um, evil. I mean, it's, yeah, it's evil. It's, it's, it's not just cynical. It's evil. It's, I mean, obviously it's not even self-interest because self-interest properly understood. Everyone should be trying to stem the effects of climate change. So, yeah. so it's, it's stupid. It's evil. Uh, it's cynical. And perhaps, perhaps no other issue is so clearly more dangerous than any partisan politics should be able to combat. And yet, strangely, this more than almost anything is an issue that's so easy to divide people over, which is another bizarre part of the story. Yeah, I mean, how... 
how climate change was sort of initially categorized as a as an issue was a a troublesome thing certainly um you know it 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 was sort of i think originally cast as a sort of hippie environmentalist thing that it's like uh we'll save some some birds and some like endangered sage grouse or something but in reality mainly it's about saving humanity from itself you know it's about self-protection and so you know some and that's not, you know, a lot of environmentalist stuff is actually about that, too, you know, where you're like, okay, mercury is bad for the animals, so also bad for babies. You know, you don't want to put mercury into your baby. Um, and that, you know, I think it, it just, it goes to show how a, a, a political movement, which has been so completely... Um, corrupted by cynicism and by money and by bad faith and 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 bigotry and just the worst impulses in, in humanity it, it it you know it's definitely going to harm people in like the congo basin more than it is uh americans but it's going to harm americans too pretty badly and the americans it's going to harm are the ones that are not elite and don't have the ability to move wherever they need to move and to accommodate the changes in climate that will come. It's going to once again be people that support those elite politicians, especially in the, in the Republican party who are using them for their own power and interests and the special interest groups that support them. Um, And they're being duped. And so I, I do not think that we should ever get angry at the voters for being duped when capitalism not only helped produce this crisis of climate change, but also capitalism has enervated the people in, in such dire ways, whether it's economic precarity or just the soulless aspect of so many jobs, if you have a job, uh, such that human beings and how they feel are so easily subject to the kind of stimulation that comes from this kind of entertainment politics, this circus nonsense, that at least makes them feel like they have some power over the libs, if you will, or that has some sense of uh, you know, tribal comfort or some sense that they can be amused, entertained, or comforted um, in the face of otherwise precarious and meaningless uh, drudgery in their lives. So it's kind of unfortunate that we sometimes blame the victims of these structural problems when I can see very easily how easy and seductive it would be to um, participate in something that makes you feel better a little bit in the midst of all this meaninglessness and, and, um, and kind of um, difficult, difficult life in, in the United States, uh, political economy yeah it it's true i mean it is true um i think it can be pretty dang hard sometimes to not be like you want to sort of grab people and shake them you know be like these florida retirees a lot of whom you know maybe aren't even um you know they're often very comfortable um and they're just like they love trump 
like, well, you know, when Miami's 50 miles out to sea, not my problem. You know, folks who maybe maybe aren't so economically privileged, you know, I, I think the signature phenomenon of the last, like, 10 years on conservative politics is rolling coal. Have you heard of this? This is when... This is when um, guys with big diesel pickup trucks they like they like uh, deliberately screw up their like intake manifolds or something so that um, basically when they sort of like pull a lever their truck just belches partially combusted diesel fumes you know black smoke out of the out of the smokestack and um, that's adorable. You know, there's there's videos of uh, you know so like like people they'll they'll drive in front of a prius and then pull this thing and just like smoke the prius with black smoke or like you know guys like sticking their heads in these like fountaining columns of black uh smoke and it's like that i mean number one incredibly postmodern thing to do this is like absolutely divorced from any sort of empirical referent in the world like this is 100 percent cultural like self-reference you know and um number two you're gonna kill yourself you know this this is how people commit suicide by putting the <laughs> turning the car on in the garage <laughs> and you're gonna stick your head in this stuff you know i mean it's just like I guess a, a, a representation of, in very concrete form and in very directly, personally impactful form of how this kind of of diseased politics can, you know, literally poison people. Here's with the thing. Here, fumes. look. The one way of thinking of two big drivers of human passion. There's eros and there's thanatos. There, there's the the, the love or erotic drive that's generative and desirous. Uh, and then there's the Thanatos drive, right? There's the death drive. And I think if you're cut off from connection, if you're cut off from things that you desire, that you think you might be able to possess and achieve and pursue, I think the, the default move might be to just burn it all down. And, and, and the satisfaction of um, going, basically, it's akin to, to going postal, and so many um, psyches that can't see a way to find connection or to find meaning or to find um, those beautiful things that make life worth living. The next easy move is to see, hey, wait a minute, I can, you know. Misery loves company. I can ruin someone else's happiness quite easily. I can, I can piss in their cornflakes. I can destroy things. And I think a number of people said they voted for Trump just to burn it all down, uh, the system that's yeah. failed them, right? I think so. And that might be a good... Uh, you Happy know. note to end on? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> come on, it's let's find a... an uplifting... Come on, we have to find an uplifting way to, to spin that. Let's, let's move from there to some, some hope, some hope. Maybe. Mm, I don't know about between the <laughs> death drive and the not death drive. And climate change. And well, let's, let's say this. If the dialectic is indeed, if Geist and Hegel and, and, and Marx know a thing or two or about a thing or two, these insurgents on the left might be 
the future of where passions align in in a way that actually has political sustainability, I, I would say. I, I think in the end, many of the people who support Trump and the tribalism that, that sustains that base, I don't think that is ultimately a kind of passion that, that is long-lasting, actually. And, and I think that, indeed, the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortezes of the world are the ones who will create through their hopeful, courageous agendas and um, movements that they're participating in and, and helping to push forward. I think that is ultimately the side that I would bet on. And, and so I'll, I'll, I'll leave it, I'll leave it at, at that hopeful note um, because I do think in the end that that's an easier message to grab hold on. And I think that more people can be kind of awakened into that reality. And so I have a little faith in that. Very well put. It's Um, been fun, as usual. Yeah. Tune in next time. (laughs) See you all later.